0: Do we have anyone in here who um, has a problem with authority? Anybody else? All right. Cool. I think there's something innate in us that we kind of uh, have this desire to, like, rebel against the authority. When I was a kid, I was, uh, I was a pretty compliant kid, not because I was good, but basically because I was afraid. You know, I was afraid of incurring the wrath of what would happen if you break the rules, right? But I remember the moment when I kind of risked it and decided I was going to try to rebel against authority, and it was my freshman year in high school. It was the first day of, of school, and I was in my science class, and I looked around, and I realized that the the, the composition of the class, there was this disproportionate number of popular girls and and, and lack of, popular guys, right? And I looked around and I was like, this is my window of opportunity because I was not popular, okay? And I was like, there's not like a class clown in the class and I decided I was going to try to be that, right? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't work out well, okay? It did not work out well. Um... And so I gave this teacher a really hard time. It was like her first year teaching. It was a bad experience for both of us. And to make it worse, I actually had to repeat that class, which is so embarrassing to say. But and I had her again. All right. It, it went much better the second time. I learned my lesson. But I think all of us have this like innate sense of, of wanting to like rebel against authority. There's just something in us, in our, in our makeup, right? And we think that we can probably do a better job of whoever is above us. As a matter of fact, right now, according to a CNN poll, um, when it comes to people's faith in the government um, and and the authorities of the day, uh, 14% of America is is approving of, of the way Congress is doing their job right now. 14%, 14%, that's not a lot of faith. I'm pretty sure the Colbert Middle School Student Government Association could pull off a 14% yeah. uh, approval rating if they were in charge of it all, right? But, um, th- so that's not great. There's this there's this sense, I think, in us of this natural, like, feeling like we don't want to be in a place of submission to anyone over us. It's one of the oldest stories in the book, Right? It's how we got into the whole situation of sin to begin with. This this desire to be the ones in charge, to reach for power, and to refuse to submit. Where we are today in the book of Romans, as we've been traveling through this book all summer long, just chapter by chapter, today we're in chapter 13. And Paul goes into this uh, this lengthy charge here, where he talks about The Christian's responsibility to submit to government. The Christian's responsibility to submit to the authorities of the government in charge. And and it's interesting. It seems out of place in a book that is so rich and so fit with this theology, like mind-blowing theology, and that's just like poetic stuff that's here. And then all of a sudden this transition where he starts to talk about Christians' responsibility to submit to government. Why is this here? What's it doing, and how does it fit in the the book, in the course of the book? Well, it actually fits very well, believe it or not, because, as we said last week, uh, chapter 12 hits this kind of pivot point for the entire book, where chapters 1-11 through hammer away at the deep, unbelievable mercy of God. Over and over again, he talks about the mercy of God and the way that God has brought us into a righteousness. Even though we were far away from Him, even though sin separated from us from Him, God made us righteous with Him. And he says that this happens by grace, through faith in Jesus. And because of that relationship with Jesus, we are made right with God. Over and over, he hammers away at the depth this like what an incredible gift what an incredible mercy this is how rich God's grace and love for us is over and over and over and you hit chapter 12 and then he says therefore in view of that mercy in view of all of the mercy that God has poured out on us offer your bodies as living sacrifices and begin to live in response to grace Live in response to grace. And then that famous line that he says, where he says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the way that you've lived before, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, And we talked last week about how that word transform is actually the, the Greek word where we get the idea of metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. We're not talking about like a slight shift. Okay, We're talking about like transformation into butterfly, like completely new creation. You are completely different than who you were before because of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. So he says we begin to live in response to grace. And so our lives are going to look different than they did before. And our lives are going to look different than the lives of of society around us that we have this responsibility to live in response to grace, to live transformed lives. And so, for the rest of the book there, he transitions from this deep theology and he talks about the practice of it. So from the theory of it into the practice of it. And, And so for the rest of the book, he's talking about the practical implications of that most impractical idea of grace. So here's what it looks like to live in response to grace, he says. And it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And it means to not think of yourself as as above other people, but to willingly embrace humility and to willingly submit yourselves. And so that's where this lands, and that's how it plays into the rest of the book. Also, at the time... Um, Because the message of Christianity was so fresh and so new, Um, there was this tendency on the part of people that once they experienced this transformation, to react against the world in which they lived. So after hearing the hope of this transformation and the hope of heaven and the hope of Christ's triumphant return, then some Christian communities had... Um, had, had this thing where they would basically completely disengage from society. And, and so they would pull out and they would say, well, Christ is coming back for us soon, so why do I need to be a part of the world? Like, this is all going to burn, and so I'm just passing through, this is not my home, and so I will pull out and, and like, be disengaged with the world. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That's completely backwards. Completely backwards. Because of the transformation we've experienced, we should be engaged with the world, realizing that Christ is redeeming the world. Christ is redeeming the world. Not that we should completely cut ourselves off, but we should be engaged with the world and be a part of seeing God's kingdom come where we live, right here, right now. That it's not just waiting for what is to come; it's experiencing what is right now. And so this is it, a response to that reaction that people have um, of, of doing that. And, and the same happens today, doesn't it? So some guy says, I heard a word from God, and um, guess what? On this day, it's all going down, and you know he's coming back for us. And so sadly, like just a couple of months ago, you hear about people who sell their homes and then give all of the money away or or quit their jobs and say, well, you know, on Friday I quit because on Saturday Jesus is coming back and on Monday it's like, by the way, uh, I was just kidding about that, right? So it's this sad thing and, and people kind of, what I found funny about that though is you guys probably heard like there were people who started like charging Christian's money that says, okay, when you get raptured, I'm, I'll take care of your pets for you, right? So people make money off of that. That's really sad. Okay. But anyway, um, so Paul is saying, don't live like that. Don't live like that. That's ridiculous. The transformation that you've experienced should cause the exact opposite response. Not that you disengage from the world, but that you engage with the world. Because you realize that the Spirit is alive in you and that every step you take, you advance the kingdom of God. That everywhere you are, God is present and God is active. And that God wants to see His kingdom come in this world now. That it's not just a future hope, it is a very present reality. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't disengage. And so people who have that tendency to do that, and so they re- refuse to pay taxes as well because why would I pay taxes to this world when you know I'm not part of their apostles? No. No, it's not like that at all. Not like that at all. Submit to the governing authorities. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen because even though you are a citizen of God's kingdom first, being a citizen of God's kingdom should make you the very best citizen of the city in which Right, That everywhere you go should be a better place because you are there. It's not you against this world. It's you helping God's kingdom come about in this world because of the transformation that you've experienced. So here's what he says here in chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So here's Paul's response and reaction to the way that people were disengaging from the world. It's, it's interesting. Okay. Now, obviously some very serious questions are raised by what we just read. Some very serious questions are raised. What is Paul trying to say to us right now? Okay? Paul is saying that government is a reflection of God. That authority is a reflection of God. Right? Now, is Paul saying that every expression of government is an expression of God's will? And that every expression of government is an expression of what God wants? and of God's heart. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul is not saying that at all. Okay, He was very aware, he's not naive, about the way that good things can get corrupted and the way that government can become corrupt and the way that authority can become corrupt. How do we know that? Because Paul himself was a part of a corrupt authority before he became a Christian. Right? He was a part of the, of the leading religious group called the Pharisees. And Paul himself was there giving approval when the first Christian martyr was put to death. Paul was probably there when Jesus was falsely accused for things. Paul was probably there when people were working the back channels to get Jesus put on, a, on an unfair trial Paul was probably there when the religious leaders were cutting deals with Pilate and putting political pressure on Pilate to make him cave. Paul saw Pilate, who was this man of position and power, had absolutely no strength. Even though he was a man of power, he had no strength. He had no conviction and no courage. And he caved to political pressure and put an innocent man to death. Right? Paul saw all of this happen. Understood very well that authority can be corrupt. So he's not saying that every expression of government is an expression of God's will. Okay? What he is saying is that good government is a good gift from God. Good government is a good gift from God. Leaders who give themselves to serve other people for the sake of the people is a good thing. It's a reflection of the way that God as well. Leaders who try to bring order to chaos, to give order to life, is a good thing, and it's a reflection of the way God works. Leaders who inspire people with vision, who encourage people, who chart a course for a road ahead for people is a good thing. Leaders who create systems and structures that bring order to the world is a good thing. Leaders who strengthen the weak. Without weakening the strong, is a good thing. Okay, so that's a good thing. But he's very aware that even the good things from God can get twisted. Even the good things from God can get twisted and corrupted, and it happens all around us. It happens all around us. So the examples are are far too many for how that happens, and it's one of the oldest sins in the book is for people to get thirsty for power and to want more of it to get hungry for power and to want more of it and to abuse it right to abuse it and that's wrong that's when things get way out of order so in the next uh little passage there Paul continues and he says this like he was saying if you owe taxes pay taxes If it's revenue, pay revenue. If you owe honor, give honor. If you owe respect, give respect. And he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. If you look at those commandments that he pulls out, don't murder, don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't covet. They all have something in common. They all involve either desiring or taking something. Uh-huh. Desiring or taking something that does not belong to you. Okay, It's a corruption of power. It's wanting something that is not yours. To murder is to take someone's life and you don't have the authority to do that. To steal is to take something that doesn't belong to you. Commit adultery. It's it's all about taking something that doesn't belong to you. Okay? And it's twisted. It's the twisting of power. And Paul says that that is the opposite of love. That is the opposite of love. So when government begins to get like that, then that is not a reflection of God's heart. And that is not a reflection of God's will. So, what do we do then? How do we live in relationship to government when we know that things get corrupt? What are we supposed to do? Paul says that we should submit to government. Paul never says that we should always obey everything that we're told to do. Okay? There's a difference between respect and and obeying. Okay, we can respect someone's position, and we can respect the position that they've been placed in. But our convictions are what rule us, right? Our convictions that we following what we know God wants us to do. That's what rules us. And so, absolutely, we pledge allegiance, and and, and we say we will be um, good citizens. But our first allegiance is to God. He is the sovereign king. And if he asks us to do something that that is against what our leaders ask, then what he says trumps it. Right? What he says trumps it. Um, is this contradicting, contradicting scripture, what I'm saying here? Absolutely not. Scripture is filled with courageous people who disobeyed their leaders by, by obeying God. Right? So we have the story of the prophet Nathan who comes into the throne room where King David is there, and he speaks truth to power, right? And he he calls David out on David using his position and his power to um, steal the wife of his friend and then to have his friend put to death and then to use his position to cover it up. Nathan comes in and he speaks truth to power. And he says, my first allegiance is to God, even over God's king." First allegiance is to God. Same thing happens in the story of Esther. She breaks the law in order to save God's people. Uh, Daniel is living in a place where it's commanded, do not pray to, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he prays to Yahweh. And he's thrown into the lion's den for it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same culture. They are told that they have to bow to this idol of the king and to worship it. They refuse. They go against the law of the land because the law of love and the law of God trumps it, right? So over and over we see this happen. In our own culture, we see this. Civil rights movement. The civil rights movement is a beautiful example of what it means to live by the law of God first, right? And so in peaceful ways, people disobey the law of the land in order to live out the law of God. and and it changed the society that we live in. So, there is this fine line, okay? This fine line for Christians to where on the one hand we should be submissive, but on the other hand we should also be subversive, right? Where we should live lives that are so different within our culture that it influences change. Ivan Illich, we've quoted this before, Ivan Illich has said, That the way to change society is not by violent revolution or peaceful political process. The way to change a society is to tell an alternative story. So the way we change the world in which we live in is we don't just tell it, but we actually live an alternative story. We live in such a different way that we influence change out of the transformation that we experience by God. Okay? So, there it is. This weird tension here that Paul lays out. This tension between living lives that are submissive to government, but at the same time, subversive to the ways of the world. Okay? We respect our leaders, and we pray for them, and we hope the best for them, not celebrating their failures, but hoping for the best. Right? But at the same time, we understand that we obey God's laws. First, and our first allegiance is to him. Are these contradictory, contradicting ideas? No, not at all. Because as we said at the beginning, to live as a citizen of God's kingdom makes you the very best kind of citizen in the city in which you live as well. It's precisely our love for God as a church that gives strength and depth to our love for chaplainhood. Because we love God so much and love his kingdom so much, we love this town so much. It inspires our love for this community. It inspires our hope that this community thrives. And when this community is thriving, we are thrilled by that. We pray for this place. We pull for this place. We love it. Because of our allegiance to God, we want to see this town, this community. So as a church, that's what we want to be about, okay? We don't want to see ourselves as antagonistic towards the community in which we live. We are protagonists for this place, okay? We love this place, and we will work, and we will pray, and we will do everything that we can do to see this community alive. We live here intentionally, we eat here intentionally, we spend our money here, we pay our taxes here, we work here, we want to be a part of this place. And we want to see this community rise. That is our hope for this town, okay? So we pray for our leaders. We don't tear them down. We hope for their best. We do not celebrate when they fail. And we want to be a part of moving this community forward and seeing the kingdom of God rise and come as a reality in this place. Okay? That's who we are. That's what we're going to be about. We will not disengage and say, well, we're part of another world. This is not our home. We're just passing through. Absolutely not. This is our home. This is our home. We love this place. We're not just passing through. We're here to stay. We're staying home. Okay? But we want to see this place thrive. And we want to see God's kingdom thrive in this place how we feel about it and that's what we want this church to be about so our prayer for the beginning of this church was that if something happened and this church was gone for some reason then people would recognize that it was gone and that people would miss it that there'd be a hole in this community because this place is gone and so we want to be about serving the community That's why we started this thing called Love Local, okay? And on our website, you can find that. There's a a page there called Love Local, where we intentionally lay out different opportunities for people in our church and people from the community at large to serve in this community. So if your small group or with a group of friends or just your own family or just yourself individually, if you're looking for a way to serve this town, go to that page, Love Local. And so you'll love lovechapelhill.com and you'll see it at the bottom of right the and, and, and get involved in one of these ways to serve the community. We love this place and we want to serve it. And we pray for its thriving. So as we wrap up here, uh, my friend Quincy is going to pass something out to you. Okay, It's just a piece of paper and on it is a list of different government leaders um, and different Uh, leaders from our community and also nationally and and state as well. And this is just a challenge to hold this with you this week and to take time this week to intentionally pray for our leaders. Okay? Not to pray against them, but to pray for them. Okay? And, and, And maybe you would take the time even to send a message to them and let them know, hey, I prayed for you today. Not that I'm trying to flood your mailbox with something that I want you to pass or put pressure on you for something that I want to see accomplished. Just a message that would probably be like fresh air to them. Just to say, hey, I believe in you and I pray that you will fly. I pray for you and I pray that God will bless you. Okay? We want to be about that. We're not going to be antagonists to our culture. We'll co for this place. Okay? As we close, I'm going to take some time. And we're just going to pray. And I'm going to say off the names <coughs> of the people here. And we're going to take a few uh, moments between each name. And I'm going to encourage you to pray for them right now as we close up. So our president, Barack Obama, pray for our president. Governor Bev Perdue. Chapel Hill Chief of Police, Chris Blue. Chapel Hill Fire Chief, Dan Jones. Carborough Chief of Police, Carolyn Hutchison. Chief Travis Crabtree. Father, be with our leaders. I pray that you would encourage them today. I pray that uh, they would even feel a strange, unexplainable sense of encouragement this morning that they would find new strength to do their jobs well. That You would move on their hearts to have their hearts bent towards You and to lead in a way that is a reflection of You. Pray that they would lead for the sake of the people that they're serving and that they would find a real joy in their jobs. Pray that they would be flooded um, with a strange amount of encouragement, uh, three letters sent to them, phone calls sent to them, uh, that would just be a really sh- strange experience from what they normally uh, go through in a day. Pray you give them creativity and wisdom and courage. God, we pray specifically for our own town here. Chapel Hill and for Carver, we pray that you would make this place thrive. We pray that the the businesses on Franklin Street would experience uh, the thriving that they they can't explain. I pray that you would place in our hearts a deep love for this place that, that makes us want to engage with it, not disengage with it. That you would let our church be marked by that. That we would be a church that Puts down its roots here, and that ties itself to this place, and that prays for your kingdom, and that works for your kingdom, and that sweats for your kingdom coming in this place. Amen, we'll stay